Amen. This morning we're going to talk about the proof and the prize of God's love. In Romans chapter 5, if you've looked in your bulletin, you'll know that next week we're going, Lord willing, to Romans 6. And so I encourage you, one of the things we try to do in our bulletin each week is give you a heads up of where we're headed, whether that's for Sunday night or Wednesday or or Sunday morning or Wednesday. It gives you a chance to read ahead and prepare your heart and mind for what you'll hear. This morning we're going to be again there in Romans 5, so I encourage you to make your way there. As you make your way there, I want to contemplate or maybe set this passage um, in the grand scheme of what's happened. You see, as you think about the Thursday night of the final week of Jesus' life, you see him there as they showed on the video and you heard them singing around that table, taking of that bread and that juice. It was there that he told them that the Son of Man is soon going to die. We saw them leave, and Thursday night they head out into the garden to pray, and soon Judas and the others will show up, and they'll betray him, and he'll be taken off, and before the Jewish Supreme Court being pronounced as guilty, as one who stands, as seemingly in their eyes, a man claiming to be God, indeed a blasphemer for which the high priest will tear his robe, he'll be handed over to the Romans and under the rule of the governor Pilate, who will begrudgingly, seemingly, but at the, the will of the people, pronounced Jesus guilty, sentencing him to be beaten and ultimately crucified on the cross. It is there on that cross as he hangs between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. that we hear the words of the Jewish ruler saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the Son of God. And not only that, we hear the soldiers mocking him. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. As he hangs there with that crown of thorns piercing his skull and those three metal spikes, two through both wrists and one through his feet. But there we also see in the crowd, or maybe it's also who we don't see, the disciples who have deserted him and fled. And yet during this darkest of moments, what do we hear the heart of our Savior? The heart toward the Jewish leaders, the Roman soldiers, the disciples who have deserted him and fled, and even to the thieves on his right and left. Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. The heart of God. In that moment, Father, forgive them. And Paul seems to look back to this moment today in our text in Romans 5 and seeing what is the heart of God toward you and I. That's a question we should all wonder. What is God's heart toward us? And Paul says it is one of love. It's love. And you may ask, well, why does that matter? Well, guess what? Because there are times when we doubt, does God actually love us? And that's not true just for those who are unbelievers. Let's be honest, even as believers, as God's own children, we doubt, does God love us? Especially in moments when we're suffering or hardships come our way. And yet Paul looks back to this greatest moment in history. This moment of the cross of Christ and his burial and resurrection. And he says to us, Christ's sacrifice is both the proof and the prize of God's love. Christ's sacrifice is the proof that God loves you. But it's also the prize of God's love towards you. As you make your way again there to Romans 5, Paul has been walking through in the book of Romans and the first three chapters making the clear indication that everyone is guilty, that the entire world are sinners. As Adam read earlier, that we all like sheep have gone astray, that there's no one who seeks God. No, not even one. And yet in the midst of that, he says that there's a God who is willing to justify sinners. 
And then in Romans 4, he, he comes to that moment and saying, listen, how is one justified? How is one declared innocent before God? By faith. Just like with Abraham. And then he finishes and he comes into chapter 5 and he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also, he says, obtained access into faith, into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, listen to what he says in verse 3. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Brandon Sparling, you, you were quoting this to me the other Sunday night. I remember hearing you, brother. And, and listen to what else he says. Though Paul comes and he says, guess what? And this hope does not put us to shame. Pam Romans was quoting it to me this morning. Verse 5 of Romans 5. Because God's love, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. And maybe you wonder and ponder, how does God actually love us? How does the Father feel about us? And what is the proof and what might be that prize? So if you would, look with me. Romans 5, 6 through 8. As we come to this first truth, the proof that God loves us. The proof that God loves us. And the first thing I want to point your attention is this, that God's love is proven by who He loves God's love is proven by who. That's what Rick was saying. This is, it's a marvelous thing to consider who God actually loves. Look what Paul says, verse 6 of Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Still weak. That's a word that often throughout the New Testament indicates physical weakness. That someone who's, who is physically sick or, or has some serious disability... But here Paul is is saying something more than physical weakness. He's saying that actually we have a spiritual weakness. That we're unable to do the right thing. It's as our Savior said in Matthew 26, 41, as he prepares to leave his disciples, he says, be ready, be on watch. Why? For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is what, church? Weak. The flesh is weak. The flesh is unable to resist the temptation. It's our inability to do good. But Paul says not only are we weak, unable to resist the things that we should resist, he says that we are also ungodly, that there's a lack of reverence toward God. And you may hear that and think about the non-believing world, and that's true. There's a lack of reverence toward God. Paul's been making that point in Romans 1. But it's not just about the people out there that lack reverence for God. It's us too. You see, you can look right on the outside, but God always looks deeper to our hearts. And as God looks deeper to your and my heart, guess what? He sees the true nature. That's why Jeremiah, the prophet of long old, it said in Jeremiah 23 and 11, he said both prophet and priest are ungodly. The very people that you expect to be the most godly, he says, actually are ungodly. Why? Not because they're outward actions, but because of those inward desires. But not only are we weak and ungodly, again, it's God's proven his love by who he loves. Well, notice this. He says in verse 7 that we aren't righteous and we aren't good. Listen to what he says here. For he says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. He says somebody might die for the good person, the righteous person, but, but to be willing to die for the evil and the ungodly? I mean, who's jumping in line to say, I'll die in the place of the thief. I'll die in the place of the murderer. I'll die in the place of the bully. 
I remember hearing old Adrian Rogers say, he says, we like to say that the stars come out at night. But he said, that's not actually true. The stars are always out. It just takes the darkness to see it. You see, we often wonder, what is the extent of God's love? Brothers and sisters, we only need to look within to the darkness of our own hearts to see the glory of God's love toward us. But Paul's final nail in the coffin that proves God's love toward you and I, it's it's here found in verse 8. Listen to what he says. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Still sinners. When does God show us his love? When we're still sinners. In other words, God's love, it's so it's so profound, it's so amazing, it's so indescribable that God shows His love for you and I the most when we deserve it the least. I mean, think now. It's the darkest moment in your life. Think about it. What would you define as the darkest, least deserving moment of your life? I don't know what it was, where you were, what you were doing. Into that moment, Paul says, God steps in and says, I love you. Let me show you how much. Hear that. And your darkest moment. I mean, consider the cross and one of the thieves that was hanging there, right? We, we're hearing that they're both insulting, but something at one point changes one of the thieves. And he says, listen to the other man. We're getting what we justly deserve, but this man's done nothing wrong. And then he says to him in Luke 23 and 42, simply, Master, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answers him those epic words of verse 43 of Luke 23. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me where, church? In paradise. Did you hear the love of God toward that thief there on the cross? That's why we stand and sing. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Wash all my sins away. You see, I think the reality, though, even in hearing this, there's a reminder, like some people talk the talk, right? But we like people to walk the walk. I don't know if you've ever had those moments where you've heard enough and you're like, you know what? Prove it. Just prove it. And that's where God's loving is proven, not only by who he loves, but how he loves. Look what he says again, verse 6 and verse 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Look what he says in verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says, if you want to know how much God really loves you, don't look to your bank account. Don't look to what you see in the mirror. Don't look to your social media following. He says, if you want to know how much God truly loves you, look to the cross. Look to the Son of God there dying and hearing Him say, Father, forgive them. Who's the them? Well, it's the weak. It's the weak disciples who've deserted Him during the night and fled. The weak. Remember, it's not only the weak, but He says, Father, forgive them. It's also the ungodly. It's these priests and leaders and people mocking and spitting on Him as He hangs there on that cursed tree. The Father, forgive them. It's also those who are still sinners just like the thief Next to him on the cross, to every sinner here this morning who has ever doubted your worthiness, the truth is you and I are not worthy. That's Paul's very point. That's what makes the love of God so compelling. 
God isn't getting the A-listers. He's getting the bad news bears. And he says, this is the marvelous, extravagant love of God towards you and I. I mean, do you realize how this transforms us in the moments of suffering, the moments of discouragement, moments of defeat? That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 5. They're struggling. They're experiencing hardships. He's saying to them, guys, if you're doubting the love of God or you want to remind yourself of the assurance of your, of your hope, realize and never forget that you've never earned or deserved it to begin with. It was never about our worth. It was about his love. You see, Jesus loves us just as much on our worst day as he does on our best day. God's love for you and I isn't based upon our performance for him. It's based upon his character, his name, his love. So if you doubt this one, hear this. If you doubt that God loves you today, this text leaves no doubts. I had a conversation recently. Brother, I just said, listen, man, it. God's word must trump our feelings. Sometimes we have feelings a certain way. Your feelings can lie and deceive you. God's word will never lie. This is the truth. Again, you're here. You're doubting God's love to you this morning. This text leaves no doubts. This is how God loves you, brother or sister. It was through the Son of God who was lifted high and stretched wide on that old rugged cross. That's why we sing, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin. My sin upon his shoulder. That's why you, some of you, have been singing longer than I've been alive. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole church. It was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh my soul, praise the Lord. Let the church say amen. That's the hope we have. So this morning we rejoice. And reminding ourselves of that old story that many of you have heard for years, or maybe this morning's fresh and anew, of the proof that God loves you. But it's not only the proof that God loves you that Paul says will stick with you and encourage you in the midst of your trials and your sufferings. He wants you also to know the prize we receive because God loves us. You see, it's not only that God loves us in the midst of our sin, it's not only that Christ was died for us and was raised again, but God has given us something so glorious. Paul says, you and I need to slow down today and consider it. God has given you Himself. God's given you Himself. And I think these three prizes seem to echo or jump out from us to us from verses 9 through 11. <coughs> Excuse me. The first one is this. <coughs> because God loves us, we receive the prize of justification. Look what Paul says, beginning of verse 9. Since, therefore, right, in response to what God has done for us, in response to this love for us in the midst of our sin, he says, we have now been justified by his blood. Therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Right, I mean, we've talked about it before, the word justified. It means justified never sin, but it also means justified always done right. To be justified before God, consider that. It's not just justified, never sin. It's not that just simply that your sin was taken away, although indeed it was, right? That Christ on that cross as our substitute takes our sin and our, our shame, our bondage, our rebellion, our disobedience, all on Him. But also on that cross, as the Son of God dies as your substitute, to be justified means also all of His perfect obedience perfect surrender, perfect love of God and love of neighbor 
is now credited to you. Consider that. You stand before God, not only forgiven of everything you've done, but that Christ's perfect life has been credited to you. That's the ultimate debit and credit. I mean, Paul says, guys, you and I stand before the judge of all the earth. And for all those who have repented and put their faith and trust in Christ, the the verdict is not guilty. It's innocent. It's holy. It's it's righteous and and holy. And your holiest God is holy. It feels blasphemous to say that. But that's the truth of the gospel. Christ's perfect life has been so credited to you and I that we stand in His perfect righteousness and not our own. What a glorious thought to come before our Father. So again, the first prize we receive is justification by His blood. But we also receive another prize, and it's being saved from God's wrath. Look again with me, church, to verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Possibly you hear that and you wonder, what is God's wrath? What is that? It's a deep and intense anger that arises by a sense of injury or insult. And maybe you wonder, and I think it would be good to do so, who of us has insulted God? And the Bible is, answer is, every single one of us. Every single one of us have insulted God by our sin. You see, we're created in God's image as His image bearers to honor and to glorify Him, but yet in our rebellion and sin, we're rebelling against God and deserving of His judgment and wrath. I was reading this week, and it was just a great moment of just pondering these thoughts. And it, it, Just think back, right? Imagine with me that you've gone back to the night of the Passover. You, you found yourself there, and you, you're seeing two men that are, that are talking and having this discussion. They're talking about all the miracles that God has done and all, all the different judgments he's brought upon Egypt. And now the night is coming when God has said the angel of death is about to pass through the land. And the only hope of, of being saved is to sacrifice a lamb and, and place the, dud, the, the, the blood of the lamb above your doorpost. And as you hear these two gentlemen having this discussion One of them is rejoicing in the fact of what God has done and who he is and his confidence and trust. But the other guys, they're struggling. He's got some doubts. It's not that he hasn't, again, sacrificed the lamb and put it over the doorpost. But if you looked at his life this past week, he's had some struggles. He's got some fears, concerns. What's going to happen to his firstborn? You see, the truth is he only has one son. And so that night... When the, the, the death angel passes through, the question comes, which of those two men lost their firstborn son? The answer is neither. Neither. You, you see, we've got to be really certain that the ground of our justification isn't on the intensity of our faith. Like, oh, you know what? I'm really intense this week, so that means I'm good. Or you know what, I've been really obedient this week, I've done really good this week, so that must mean I'm good. No, friend, the ground of our justification, the thing that saved them from the angel of death, the same thing that will save them from the wrath of God, is the same thing that will save you and I from the wrath of God. It is the blood of the Lamb. That's it. All other ground is sinking, saying, if you're trusting in your own goodness, 
your own righteousness, your own obedience, if your faith is just strong enough. As Pastor Don Carson calls us to ask ourselves, how many times do we writhe in the agony asking if God ever loved us enough? Or if God could ever care for us enough after we've done such stupid, sinful, rebellious things after all these years, 40 years being Christians or whatever. What are you going to say to God? Oh, God, I tried hard, you know. I mean, I, got, I did my best. I'm guessing it was just a bad moment. No, no, no. Friend, that's why we've been singing all these years. I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he what, church? He died for me. That is our ground of justification. It is the only thing that will rescue you and I and save us from the wrath that is to come. It is the blood of Jesus Christ, His life in your place. If you're trusting anything else, then brother, sister, you will find yourself constantly in sinking sand. Always worried, always afraid. Paul says there is a place to rest and trust. And it is the death of God's own son for you on the cross. We've seen these two prizes that arise, right? One is that we are justified by the blood of the lamb. Secondly, he says to us that we have been saved from God's wrath, his judgment that is to come, that is righteously right against us. And yet God is willing to show grace and mercy through the blood of his son. But then comes this third one, this third prize, and it's this. Because God loves us, we receive the prize of joy in God. It was what the song they were singing, right? They began with that song, Rejoice. They finished with the song today, Rejoice. Look what he says, verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Did you notice? Look what Paul says at the beginning of verse 11. More than that. As extravagant as it is to be declared innocent and not guilty, as extravagant as it is to contemplate that we are saved from the wrath and judgment of God, Paul says something even more has come to us that we who were once in rebellion against this God have now come to rejoice in Him. We've come to celebrate Him. As Pastor John Piper says, the end of the gospel is we rejoice in God. The highest, fullest, deepest, sweetest good of the gospel is God Himself. Enjoyed by his redeemed people. And don't lose sight of the context again. These are people who are suffering and struggling. They're in the midst of hardships. Thus, Paul is reassuring them of their hope. He's reassuring us of our hope. And he says, you want to be reassured of your hope? Return back. Meditate again on God's love for you displayed in the death of Christ. That is the place. When we do that, where do we end up? Paul says it brings us to a place of rejoicing in God, of celebrating in Him, that cherishes obedience to God more than anything else in this world, that finds delight and sacrifice and surrender. This is the aim of our salvation, church, that we treasure and rejoice in God, that we find ourselves enjoying obedience and delighting in obeying and following and loving our enemies and forgiving those who have offended us and serving and ministering to the community and the nations and sacrificing and giving and going. Guys, this is a response to the gospel. That's our hearts because of what God has done for us. Not because we're getting trying to urge Him to love us more. We live 
As the old saying goes, right, we're never working to the cross, but always from the cross. Never trying to earn or deserve His love. We're working and living in response to that love. All of this is a reminder that we don't have to, but we get to. That's our life. Rejoicing in the fact that God loves us while we were still sinners and we can't get over it. I shared this illustration years ago, but man, it just struck me this week as I was studying and praying about this message. It's the story of William Borden. I don't know if you know about the great successful Borden Milk Company right in the late 1800s, early 1900s is William Borden is when he's there. And yet this moment comes with this young man who's to be the heir of all this family business, inherit millions of dollars. So again, we're talking about early 1900s. You can imagine the amount of wealth we're talking about. And he walks away from it all. Why? Because he wants to be a missionary to Muslims in China. And on his way to China, he stops in Egypt because he's going to learn Arabic there to be able to, to, be able to communicate with the people. But one month after arriving there in Egypt, he contracts spinal meningitis and dies. 25 years old. The world looks at this man as a fool. What a waste, they think. In his, bio, in his biography, it talks about how the story began to go across every American newspaper. And this is what they write in his, part of his biography. A wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. Was Borden's untimely death a waste? The world thought it was, but him, he himself wrote in the back of his Bible these six words. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Would that describe us as a church? No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. You might wonder, how does someone ever get to that place? I would tell you, it is by drinking long and drinking often from the love of God displayed for you and I in Christ. It is to stare day after day, moment after moment at what God has done for you and I while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that in doing that, we find that our greatest joy in life becomes obedience and surrender to God. So what are you today, again, thinking about his statement there, no reserves, what are you, what are you holding back? Maybe it's the giving of your time or your prayers. Maybe you're holding back your service or your finances. Again, this isn't a message about, hey, you need to get out there and get better, get after it after all. Shape up. This is a message that says, look at Christ. Let that so move your heart. Let his sacrifice be what urges your sacrifice. Might we also ask, what have you retreated from? Have you lost maybe the joy in just sharing Christ with others? Might you pray the words of David in Psalm 51? Even David, a man after God's own heart, he had to pray these words. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Maybe you've retreated back. Maybe today is a call to call out to God. Or maybe today, as you hear the story of William Borden, as you hear about Ray, as you contemplate things in Nashville and other places, and you begin to contemplate your own end, what will be your regrets, friend? The truth is, you and I can't change the past, but that doesn't mean that we have to keep living the same way into the future. Today, as you contemplate your own end and your mortality, and let's be honest, we have been reminded this week, none of us, no matter the age, is promised this week 
What will you regret on that day? What needs to be repented of this hour and changed for the glory of Christ to enjoy and treasure Him? To the unbeliever in the room this morning, I want to just remind you again of what God's Word has said so it doesn't become that's what that preacher says or what that's what that church believes. No, God's Word has said, and it's impossible for God to lie. He's pronounced that all of us apart from Christ are weak, we're ungodly, we're not righteous, we're not good, we're still sinners. That's our true condition right now, this moment, apart from Christ. And you, by hearing this gospel today, can hear the good news and the hope, as Paul made emphatic back in Romans 4 and 5. He says to us that God is willing and able to justify the ungodly. He's willing to forgive no matter what you've done, where you've been. The hope of the gospel is, friend, that you can be forgiven. I don't know what that deep, dark thing is for you. I don't know what you think about when you think about standing before God and what your hope is. But I want to be really clear. There is no other argument. There is no other plea to be making before God. There's no plea deals, no bargains. There is one thing and one thing only the King of kings, the Lord of lords will accept. That is the blood of His Son. I want to ask you, has the blood covered you? Have you come under that precious fountain? Has that flow made you as white as snow? Dear friend, I urge you this hour, get right with Almighty God. I urge you. Response to God's Word. God, in the midst of our sin, demonstrates, He proves, He shows His love by sending His only begotten Son. You're not too dirty. You're not too tampered. You're not too used goods. The Gospel says, for God so loved you that He gave His only begotten Son that if you this morning would repent and believe on Him, you should not perish, but you should have everlasting life. Wow. To the church. Again, do not lose sight of Romans 5 that Paul wrote to a people who were suffering, who were experiencing these hardships. And he reminds them, and maybe we need to remind ourselves, do not believe the lie in the midst of whatever you're facing that somehow God's forgotten you. That God doesn't love you. This text tells you and I the truth. The enemy... I reminded one of my boys this week, he's a liar and the father of lies. And he will deceive us at every turn. That's why we return morning after morning on the Lord's day, looking to his word, hearing this truth. Church, don't believe the lie. God himself will never stop loving you. And the assurance you have is that he'll never stop loving his son who gave his life in your place. That's the hope we have. Maybe as a church right now, we need to be reminded of maybe that, hey, we're facing some challenges or hardships. This last week, I was just spending a few moments with our oldest living member, another lady who had been a member of the church for 50 years. And they were just sharing stories about singing the choir and different things of the church. I was just guessing, all right, we'd have all this conversation, but... I'm sure there are moments when pastors have come and gone. I'm sure there's moments when Greensburg Baptist has been on the mountain, moments when it's found itself in the valley. 
But I want to remind us if our hope, if our joy depends upon that the church and everything is going the best it's ever gone and the preaching is as best it's ever been and the mission going is the best it's ever been and the giving's the best it's ever been and, and there's more people than there's ever been. Guys, if that is it, then what happens when those moments don't come? Church, let it now and always what brings us joy is the love of God. Let the love of God be your joy. Let the love of God be what gives you peace. Let the love of God be your hope. Let Christ's death for you be enough. Let it be enough. As all of the ground, church, is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Maybe you need to talk to somebody that's been here 50 years. And those brothers and sisters who have labored long and well, like our brother Ray Acree in God's kingdom, that you might remind your soul of that truth. Would you pray with me, church? Father, thank you for, thank you for loving me, God. I know of my own sin, Lord. I know all too well my past. I see my own failures and mistakes from this past week, Lord. And I know my brothers and sisters in this room, they join me in their own confession. Thank you, God, for loving us even while we were weak and ungodly, unrighteous. We were not good. We were still sinners. Thank you, God, for loving us. God, now move our hearts for those who have not embraced that truth. As the brother testified this morning, walking in here, the man at the gas station who was talking to him about church and the Lord this morning. Thank you for that man's boldness. Thank you for that brother sharing that with me. What an encouragement. Father, I pray that that might be the people of Greensburg Baptist, that wherever we go, at the gas pumps, wherever we find ourselves, we find ourselves talking to people about Jesus. God, give us a big picture of our big God. May his love move and urge us to take this gospel to Greensburg and to the nations. Strengthen us, Lord. Let us rest today in your love for us. We love you, Father. We pray this thing in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. To the unbeliever, I urge you this hour, come. Come to Jesus. Come to him who loves you in the midst of your sin. And he'll transform you from the inside out by the power of his Holy Spirit. To the church, I don't know what your reserves or retreats or regrets are, but William Borden knew the same God that you and I know, the God who was worthy of it all. Whatever you need to get right today, church, let's do it. Let's leave a different people than the way we came in here because we have spent time with Jesus. Would you stand and sing with us?